Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello, Australia in the World podcast listeners. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University and Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. We are very excited to present to you a first for our podcast, a double episode. We were very honoured that Duncan Lewis accepted our invitation to come on the pod. And until recently, Duncan was Director General of Security, meaning he was head of ASIO, the Australian Security Intelligence Organisation. This was a fantastic conversation which really represents what I love most about podcasts, the opportunity to discuss complex and sometimes controversial issues with a degree of context, depth and nuance that is not possible through regular media. This meant that the conversation approached two hours in length, and so we divided it in half. On this first part, Alan will introduce Duncan and will discuss his remarkable career and the issue of terrorism. In the second part, which we will release as a separate episode, we will cover the topical issue of foreign interference, as well as the structure of national security policymaking in Australia. With that, let me hand things over to Alan. Thanks, Darren. Until September, Duncan Lewis was the Director General of ASIO, the Australian Security Intelligence Organisation. But the breadth of his experience in senior national security positions in Australia is unique in our country's modern history. The short version of a long official biography is that Duncan joined the Australian Army in 1975. He rose to be a Major General and Head of Special Operations Command. Then came a complete career switch. He left the Army and took up the position of Deputy Secretary in the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet in charge of international matters and national security. Kevin Rudd then appointed him to a newly established role as Australia's first National Security Advisor. From there, he became Secretary of the Department of Defence uh, and then Ambassador to Belgium, the EU, NATO, and of course, not to forget Luxembourg as well. Sorry, Luxembourg. In 2014, he returned to Australia to become Head of ASIO. Duncan, you probably have to have lived in the Canberra environment for as long as me to appreciate just how remarkable that career trajectory is. Welcome to the podcast and thanks for joining us. Alan, thank you very much. Darren, thank you. Good morning. It's good to be here. Let's begin at the beginning. You came to the East from Western Australia and graduated from Duntroon in 1975 with a royal classmate, if I remember correctly, the current King of Thailand. Why the army? What got you into the army in the first place? Yeah, Alan, it's a very long story. My, uh, I, I've always wanted to be a soldier ever since I was a very small boy. My grandfather had served in both world wars. He served in France for four years, broke a medical degree to go to France. He was halfway through medicine at Melbourne University at the time. When he came back, he finished his medical studies. And during World War II, he was a doctor, a medical officer. And he always had a, an enormous influence on me as a young boy. So that, that was sort of where the interest was sparked. And as I say, since I was very young, I always wanted to be a soldier. Mm. Um, and I was very lucky for 33 years to have done that. 
But I do regard myself as equally fortunate to have been able to move on and do other things as well. I've been very lucky. Well, your Army career included service with the UN Truce Supervision Organisation in Lebanon. You joined the Special Air Service Regiment, which you later commanded. That was followed by a posting as Army Attaché in Jakarta. So I guess that was your first exposure to diplomacy or at least defence diplomacy. And I suppose that was also good preparation for what was to come, your service in the Western, as commander of the Western sector of the East Timor peacekeeping mission. Then in 2001, you were appointed as commander of the Australian Special Forces. That, of course, was just months before the September 11 terrorist attacks, the beginning of the global war on terrorism and Australia's series of military deployments to Afghanistan. So how quickly after 9-11 did you understand how massively this was going to change the focus of US policy and the operational pressures on the ADF? It's a funny thing, Alan, but it was probably the most seminal period of my military life, uh, the the day or two immediately following uh, 9-11. I mean, I remember, uh, like many of us do, where we were at the time. I, I was up in Sydney. I was lying in bed. It was late in the evening. And my boss at the time, who was a kind of a laconic naval officer, rang and said, Duncan, in this deep sort of drawling voice, are you watching the television? I I was actually sound asleep. Um, And I said, no. He said, well, I think you should turn on the television because there's something quite interesting happening. By the time the sun rose the next morning, I'd been talking to Peter Cosgrove and it was very plain that in the conversations he had had with the Prime Minister, John Howard, who, as you know, was still in the States and there was they were trying to get him out of the United States, that this was going to be significant. The nature of the war against terror was not entirely clear, but we had an enormous basis of working against terrorists up until that point, but not in the same way that was about to unfold where terrorists were actually occupying space and there was a requirement then to conduct military operations into that space. Within days, I was asked by the then Chief of the Defence Force, Admiral Barry, and by Peter Cosgrove, who was Chief of the Army, how I could expand the Special Forces. And they actually said to me, can you double it straight away? Now, as you know, with any area of great specialisation, trying to step up and expand is very, very difficult because you can't get the sort of levels of training and expertise in a hurry. Anyway, we did, and one of the techniques was to use the commando regiment, which was a a slightly different skill set and more akin to an infantry skill set. So we were able to very quickly expand the organisation. And so, so calm as it well, it became Special Operations Command. It had hitherto been the Special Forces Group, which at that stage, under the group figuration, it was about, I want to think it was about 900 people or something like that. Yeah. It expanded within the space of 12 or 18 months. We are up to 2,500 people. So it was a dramatic expansion amazing, of yeah. the force. Yeah. Mm. But to go back to your point about what it all meant, it was very clear to me from the beginning that this was the start of, for me as a professional soldier in the Special Forces world, a very exciting and busy time. And within, again, weeks, we were deeply in planning to send the first 
Special Forces Task Force off to the Middle East, and that was led in by Gus Gilmore, who was commanding officer of the regiment at the time. Gus took the first group in, and I remember going in to visit. I was with Peter Cosgrove. We flew into Kandahar, and late at night, you could only get in and out of Kandahar at night. We went in in an American C-130. Gus Gilmore and about 120 Special Forces soldiers were already in there. They'd gone in sort of a couple of days before, and I formally had the opportunity to hand over command of these Australian soldiers to Jim Mattis, who then was a yeah, brigadier yeah, and, of course, yeah. went on to uh, to become the Secretary of Defence. And Jim very graciously said to me that he would look after these soldiers as well as his own, and, and he did. So that really was the start of, you know, what became a long involvement with the United States in both Afghanistan and Iraq. Right. Well, then you, after this period of very uh, intense, you know, growth and in, engagement in combat, you then leave the army and are appointed to a very senior position at the centre of the Australian Public Service in PM&C. How did that happen? Because it is not usual. Yes. No. Alan, we're full of long stories this morning, <laughs> I must say. Look, I was minding my own business when I was approached. The approach had origi- had come from John Howard. It was conveyed to me, I think, by Andrew Metcalf at the time. Would I be interested in leaving the military and coming and running the National Security Division within the Prime Minister's Department? I had never contemplated such a thing, and I remember going home and having a very long and involved period of contemplation with my wife Jenny as to what the future was going to be. But it seemed to me that there was a job of work to be done at the centre of the Australian government to better coordinate all of the sinews of national security that, that we have. I had been associated with the Prime Minister's Department for a number of years, sitting on the National Counterterrorism Committee, as it was then, which was always chaired by PM&C. And so Andrew Metcalf, who conveyed the message to me, had an answer from me to say, yes, yes, look, I, I, I will do this after much thought. The original concept was that I would be seconded over to PM&C, but I came to the view quite quickly that that was not what I wanted to do. I didn't want to be working in one organisation with the hand of another up the back of my shirt. Excellent choice, yeah. So, so, <laughs> so I asked if the position would be spilled and I would apply for it. That happened. I applied, as you do, for all public service appointments and became the uh, first assistant secretary in the National Security Division. Then a a very rapid sequence of events took place. Andrew Metcalf was sent off as a secretary to the Immigration Department and I was quite quickly promoted in behind him and became a deputy secretary. Then there was a change of government in 2007 and Kevin Rudd came into office and as you know the Labor platform at that time was to create a national security advisor position. And some while later, I was appointed to that position uh, with the level of an associate secretary. Um, And that's a whole story in itself. Now, you describe how you laid your uniform aside and took on all the colouring of a a civilian. What, What were the main cultural... I mean, you'd worked with public servants before, but what were the main cultural differences you encountered? Yes, the colour. You're suggesting it was a bland grey? or <laughs> You tell uh, us, thank <laughs> I've met some very colourful characters since, uh, since I left the service. No, look, 
It's a question I'm often asked. What was the impact or the uh, the challenges of of changing from what was a, a long military career to suddenly start dealing in a, a public service environment? Surprisingly, there was, for me at any rate, very little difference. And I put this down to a couple of things. I was a special forces officer, and the special forces culture is one of small teams. And those small teams operate in such a way that no one person in the team has a monopoly on wisdom and you require the input from everybody in the team to come to successful operational outcomes. So there is far more consultation and deliberation rather than what I might describe as just straight command direction, you know, do this. So in a sense, the notion of of a consultative approach to leadership had been ingrained in me since I was a very young officer in the Special Forces. So that was helpful. The second thing is that I was blessed in PM&C with a group of very, very clever public servants, several of whom went on to very high office themselves. But these folk gave me a terrific start in my public service career because it was different. I wasn't starting at the bottom. I was starting further towards the top, I guess, of the tree. um, And I did need that sort of support. But look, I I found that the things that make people laugh, the things that make people cry, that make them happy, that make them sad, make them satisfied, make them dissatisfied, it doesn't matter much whether you're in uniform or not. People are people and they all tend to function in a similar, or, or they behave and respond in a similar kind of way. This this is the period that you and I first began to work together. I'd come back from the Lowy Institute to run ONA, and I wanted to ask you about Afghanistan, some more about Afghanistan, which we've already touched on, because that was a subject on which we spent many hours, countless hours together in the NSC and uh, and various interdepartmental uh, meetings talking about Australian engagement, 25,000 Australians uh, served in Afghanistan over the period. But a few weeks ago, I, it was just striking to me that we saw the announcement by President Trump after his very short visit into Afghanistan that the um, that talks were resuming between the Taliban and the United States. So although Australia formally ended our combat mission in 2013, the war continues without a clear end in sight. You've thought about the conflict from a number of different perspectives, from that of, as you were discussing before, the Australian forces fighting there as an advisor to the Prime Minister and government, as Australia's ambassador to NATO. So what conclusions do you draw about Australia's longest war? Yeah, you're right. I mean, I since those early days when you and I spent those seemingly hundreds of hours around various IDC meetings and so forth here in Canberra where we became engaged. I have had a chance to think a lot about it. I was never uncomfortable about our initial deployment and engagement in Afghanistan. In the immediate aftermath of 9-11, it was clear to me that the Western democratic world was under attack the nature of that attack was different to what we had ever seen in our past and it would require some very tailored and specific responses and one of those responses would have to be a military response. 
there would need to be other dimensions, of course, to the response, but there had to be a military dimension to it. So I was very comfortable about the deployment. I was also enormously conscious, and I remember talking to the soldiers that I sent away in that first tranche, of the history of Afghanistan, where military ventures into that country over hundreds of years have proven well, they've proven to be fatal to many military mm. forces that have deployed into the place. And we'd had a recent reminder of that with the Russian presence, of course, in Afghanistan. So it was very clear to me that we had to use a different kind of approach to what had perhaps been done in the past. And, of course, the answer to all of that was a special operations-dominated operation. And so really, this was, to go back to your earlier question, this was a golden era for special forces because suddenly their skill set was required and it appeared to be the only way to achieve a satisfactory outcome and perhaps not become what I would describe as decisively engaged. Now, you know, you can then smile a little because did we become decisively engaged? Well, we were there for years and years. There's been an awful lot of, of treasure and, and, and human treasure um, expended on this operation. Um, but it did require heavy air support and light land footprint. That was the kind of the, the initial philosophy. Now, where it's all gone from there, like many wars they don't often, they rarely actually finish cleanly. Most wars don't end with a bang. They fizzle out. And this one is probably another example of the fizzling which is still going on. And you could argue, of course, that Afghanistan is in a constant state of fizzle, that it, you know, it's never really been resolved. Certainly I remember in discussions with Nick Warner and yourself and others at the time that we, we were of the view that the only f- solution to this in the longer term, would need to be a negotiated political settlement of some sort that could be acceptable domestically in in Afghanistan. But that's been quite elusive, as you know. And the great problem with military deployments is that, and I can tell you this from first-hand experience and from any cursory reading of history that I've made, it's much easier to get engaged than to disengage. So once you commit to a military operation, that's comparatively easy, certainly when compared to trying to get out of it. And so the end was always going to be a bit messy. The other complication, I think, for Australia was to what extent were we committed to this operation? You know, what was our, how much skin did we have in the game here? Afghanistan's on the other side of the world. I've mentioned that the terrorist attacks were, in my view, an attack on, among other countries, Australia and our interests and our values. And so there was a degree of comfort in getting involved. But but I think it was very clear to me that the alliance with the United States was a major driver of us becoming involved. I I would never stand up and say it was the major driver because I think we had self-interest and I was, as I say, very comfortable with our self-interest. But there is no doubt that a second driver of this, and this could still be self-interest, of course, was the alliance with the United States. As with Iraq. Uh, Indeed. Uh, And that played out again shortly after with Iraq. So trying to manage our interest in the alliance was always a difficult thing and 
we were urged on a number of occasions during the deployment to you know put in more and could we contribute more many times it was asserted in the media that we were being asked to put in more and we weren't um, so it wasn't always reliable reporting but certainly there was a sense that well could we do more and should we do more or was it not worth it you know what was how much skin were we willing to put into the game Duncan, you took over as the Secretary of Defence in 2011, and about six months ago, Alan and I had Rebecca Skinner, the Associate Secretary of Defence, on the podcast, and one of the things we discussed was the unique position of defence in the public service in being headed by a diarchy, with you have a secretary who was a civilian and the Chief of Defence Force who is a military officer. Now, in your case, this was the first time in the modern system that a, a former military officer was appointed the, into the, the civilian position of secretary. And it was also a bit unusual, too, because the CDF at the time, David Hurley, who was now the Governor General, was a contemporary of yours in the ADF. So what's your view now on how regularly, I suppose, uniformed personnel should take Defence's top job on the civilian side? Hmm. Uh, it was something of an aberration, Darren, as you point out. I think the last civilian head of the Defence Department was back in the early 60s. And that... Last Defence head? Uh, the last Secretary of Defence, I'm sorry, yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, the last Secretary of Defence who was who had a military background mm. would have been, um, I, I just don't recall his name, but it was in the early 60s. Mm. And so it is unusual Back in those times, of course, there were many senior people in the public service who had had war service during World War II. So there was a kind of a bubble coming through. But since then, it had not occurred. So there was something of a curiosity about a former military officer becoming the Secretary of Defence. Again, I think other people were far more curious about it than I was. I mean, I saw nothing particularly odd about it. You, you, uh, where you stand, where you sit is where you stand, and you argue your corner. I think the diarchy is a positive thing. I, I am a supporter of the diarchy. I think it does work. And you're right that David Hurley, of course, and I had been friends for 40 years. I mean, we'd known one another since we were 17, and um, that was unusual that you've got two kind of lifelong friends that are secretary and CDF. But the role, the civilian role in the Defence Department is a component, in my view, of combat power. It provides directly to the capability of the Defence Force. And, I mean, you don't want to put too fine a point on it, but in a way, the public servants in the Defence Department are indeed another service. It's like Army, Navy, Air Force and the APS, you know, and mm. and people write papers about this, you know, saying how important that is. But there was no question in my mind that the the public service is a uh, is a component of combat power of the of the ADF. You had a couple of years as ambassador to uh, Belgium the EU and NATO and we've been talking almost in Don't forget Luxembourg, Alan. You've forgotten Luxembourg again. I have forgotten. I know. <laughs> yes. I know. Did Small you... country slightly to the right of Belgium. <laughs> Does this drive the Luxembourg? The they have a complex. Yeah. <laughs> no. I, you, you had a couple of the thing. Thank you, Darren, for that correction. We've been talking almost entirely about uh, security issues, but in Brussels, you were also ambassador to the EU, and you were there at the time that David Cameron made his fateful decision to um, to hold a straight up and down 
referendum in the UK on uh, on Brexit. Did that come as a surprise to the Europeans? And what what do you reckon the consequences of all this are going to be for Australia? Yes, D- David Cameron's simple vote uh, was a shock to to everybody. I had only been in Brussels for maybe two weeks when uh, when he came to uh, the Hague north of where we were, to make the speech to say that there was going to be a referendum uh, on Brexit. And my European colleagues were surprised, and some of them were shocked. Being new to the world of ambassadorial duties, I thought, well, the best thing to do is go and talk to my European, that is, continental European colleagues, the, the other ambassadors to the EU. And to my great surprise, my very great surprise, the overwhelming response from them was, well, the Brits actually can go and do whatever they like because they're more trouble than they're worth. That was not exactly what I had expected to hear. (laughs) Uh, But it was clear that there had been quite a long lead up where Britain had been objecting, understandably, to the, the, the legislative controls and the regulatory controls that were being passed by Brussels. And you know, Britain has always been claimed, at any rate, exceptionalism. And in fact, to demonstrate this, I'll tell you a funny story. I went in to hand my credentials into Herman von Van Rompuy, who was the head of the, the EU. And President Van Rompuy said to me that he had been to Australia. And I knew this because I was the National Security Advisor when he and his family arrived and travelled around Queensland in a combi van, not, <laughs> not wishing to have any protection, which caused me anxiety at the time. But anyway, I said to President Van Rompuy, uh, when he asked me, have you ever lived in Europe? And I said, well, no, Mr. President, I've never lived in Europe, but I did live in the UK for a couple of years. Well, he enjoyed that so much, he took out a notebook and actually wrote it down and stuck it back in his pocket that the Australian ambassador had never lived in Europe, but he had indeed lived in the UK. But that shows you the sort of sense of exceptionalism, I guess, that is strongly held to by so many in Britain. I think it's been a real tragedy, the sort of way in which the debate has gone. I recall when the referendum was conducted, I was actually with a group of uh, very senior British intelligence officers, and the general view among them was, hmm, it's going to be close, but we think it'll be okay. And it just shows you that the gap between people who, you know, maybe are in senior government appointments and you know, kind of Joe Sixpack out there who's who's voting. And then we saw all those enormous regional differences between the north and the south of the UK. You know, we're in the south, overwhelmingly, the vote was to stay, and in the north, the vote was to leave. So there was an age division, as you know, also, where the old, in a general sense, sort of voted to leave, and the young, generally speaking, voted to stay. But it's been very, very difficult, and I know speaking to a number of British business entities over the last four or five, well, last four years at any rate, how difficult it has been to manage the uncertainty of what is going to happen. What are the what are the terms of divorce essentially between the UK and Britain? Yeah, and do you subscribe to the view that Australia has never had to deal? with the EU before because we've we've always had the prism of 
London to do it through and that we, we're now going to be sort of have to get used to dealing in a different way with the Europeans or do you think that's an oversimplification? Yeah, I think it's a, a – there is something in that, Alan, but I think it's a little bit of an oversimplification. I used to think that that was indeed the case. What I can say without fear of contradiction is that Australia's knowledge of the EU is appallingly low and, mm. and we need to know more about the EU. Uh, I have had discussions with senior political leaders in this country uh, who were quite dismissive of the EU and yet it was at the time, and I think if I'm not wrong, it still is the largest economy in the world. That is the EU, 515 million Europeans, have an economy larger than the US or China. I'm not sure that once the Brits leave, that still pertains. But at any rate, the point is that there are a very large number of people in the European Union, many of whom have cultural kind of similarities and familiarities with us here in Australia. And, you know, when you look at those big European companies, Mercedes-Benz and so forth, I mean, these are major world players. And uh, I think we probably, uh, not probably, I think we should be doing more. Now, there is an opportunity now, which I know government is pursuing, to get the free trade agreement going. While I was the ambassador, we tried manfully, but probably unsuccessfully, to get that process on the road. Initial discussions were held. The Europeans were interested. But I think now, with with the change of circumstances in Europe, probably aided a little bit by the Brexit issue, that the potential now for a free trade agreement which is meaningful and useful with the Europeans is there. Good. Now to your most recent appointment. You you came back to Australia to run ASIO, the largest of the intelligence agencies and the one with the broadest remit. It's responsible for countering threats to Australia from espionage, sabotage, terrorism and politically motivated violence and uh, foreign interference. Over decades, its uh, focus has continually shifted, collects and assesses intelligence, it straddles the domestic and the international, and it also has policy responsibilities as well. In 2014-15, soon after you took over, the reality of the terrorism threat came home literally and powerfully with a whole series of events. Operation Appleby, the series of raids in April 2014, which led to terrorism-related charges against 11 people. The Lint coffee shop siege in Sydney in December 2014 and the assassination of Curtis Cheng in Parramatta in October 2015. Now, by that stage, in all your various uh, positions, you'd been involved in the overview of Australian CT efforts for several years. What conclusions did you draw for how we'd handled the issue? I think up until that point, we had been fairly measured and I think successful in in handling the terrorist situation. I should add, Alan, that in my view, terrorism is a bit like the malarial strain. It morphs through time and it needs to be followed like a malarial prophylaxis. It needs to be followed by security 
measures in order to to counter it. So what we saw, I guess, in early 14, which was a couple of months before I took over, was a change in direction of this malarial virus. You know, it took a a turn to, to the right. And we therefore needed to reset the way we were doing business. I took over in September 2014, and a couple of days later, the uh, Appleby raids and so forth were executed. The the operation had been going for a couple of months, but the big raids happened 48 hours after I took over. (laughs) So 600 police officers up in Sydney, I think they made something like 20 arrests. And what struck me was, having been associated with terrorism in Australia since 1981 or two was how different this was because for the very first time we had Australians who were evidently not supportive of our country. You know, we had terrorists in our own community and, you know, initially people said, oh, well, that's because they're, you know, folks from the Middle East, they're not kind of really Australians. But that, of course, was not true. Uh, These people were really Australians. So it became apparent uh, to me that the difference here was that we had Australians who were terrorists, and that was quite shocking. And then, of course, we discovered that so many of these young men and a few young women had gone away to actually join the fight in the Middle East. And I just forget the numbers now, but we had... um, I have cited these publicly before, but I think we had some 200, 250 Australians that went away, more than 100 were killed in the conflict in the Middle East. And now we continue to this very day grappling with the very um, awkward issue of returnees. We were confronted with this awful situation of having children, you know, very small, vulnerable kids exposed in the Middle East, their parents fighting with ISIS. So... That was all very different, and it resulted in initially a flurry of legislation in order to try and give to the intelligence agencies and the security agencies the kind of authorities that they needed to to manage this. Uh, ASIO was, as you'd indicated before, Alan, centrally involved, obviously. This is core business for, for ASIO, and what has resulted out of this was a further strengthening of the relationship with the Australian Federal Police because quite obviously knowing what was going on, which is ASIO's business, was one thing, but actually taking action against individuals and bringing prosecutions was not for ASIO, that's for police um, responsibility. So the relationship between the Australian Federal Police and ASIO from about 2014 onwards has been extraordinarily close. And that goes right down to the personal level between you know, relationships between Andrew Colvin and myself and so on. But we now face a or we have a situation, you know, where there's federal police officers working inside the ASIO structure uh, and vice versa. So it's, it's really it's really important that those two agencies work as they have for, as I say, five or six years, continue to work in, in close harmony. But that was a very interesting time, sort of 2014, 2015 and 2016. Those four years, if I'm not mistaken, saw more ASIO investigations running at any one time than we had ever seen in our history. 
By the back end of 2016, it was starting to come off. There were less Australians going away and we looked as though we were kind of getting on top of the problem, but there's no occasion where you can dash to the boundary and pull your shirt over your head and say, <laughs> we've had a victory here because there was yeah. all the domestic issues still going on. And, you know, we've seen the tragedy of the Burke Street shooting and the various other things that have happened here in Australia since. And the sad news is that that on current trajectory is going to continue there doesn't seem to be a particular end in sight and I think we're going to be living with this for a long time because it is like trying to kind of kill an idea and it's not that simple. It's a complicated issue and it requires sophisticated solutions. My one point of satisfaction is that I hope that I've managed to at least bring to public attention the fact that you know, this sort of notion that was running around in 2015 that, you know, all refugees were terrorists or all immigrants were terrorists. I mean, what a load of nonsense. And it was furiously debated at the time. As you know, I was criticised for making these comments, but uh, I think we need to be very, very careful. There were two issues at stake. One was that the refugee and migrant communities from those countries that were most affected by terrorism were essential sources of information for us. And secondly, we had the issue of national cohesion that you know I, th I think this is important people sort of poo-poo it but it is important that you keep your nation together and rather than making terrorism a point of division within our community we needed to turn it into a binding issue that would bring us together in order to protect ourselves collectively I actually had a, a question about that particular period. And so for the benefit of our listeners, let's just re recap the, the events that you just recounted, Duncan. So this is back in, in May 2017 when, uh, in response to a Senate estimates question by Senator Pauline Hanson of One Nation regarding the link between refugees and terrorism, you stated, quote, I have absolutely no evidence to suggest there is a connection between refugees and terrorism. Now, of course, as you noted, predictably, I think, the right-leaning media tore into you, a quote from Chris Kenny saying that you joined, quote, a long list of public officials misleading the public in condescending attempts to protect national harmony, while from the centre, uh, another Kenny, Mark Kenny, called it, quote, an evidence-based exemplar of frank and fearless advice. Now, unsurprisingly to me and Alan, at least, counterterrorism experts overwhelmingly backed your assessment. But you did subsequently go on, on radio and, and sort of try to explain more about what you were saying. In response to that, Greg Sheridan said, quote, that it was extremely unhelpful to have an ASIO boss so often at the heart of partisan controversy. It's two and a half years since then. And so you've now retired from the public service. And so we were going to ask you to reflect a bit more on those comments. But I guess if I can ask specifically, in a world where facts are increasingly seen as being partisan, are senior officials given the scope and freedom to properly explain themselves now? Darren, I think they've always got the scope to explain themselves. They've always had it and I expect they always will have it. The question is whether you take it or not. And that worries me a little bit. I mean, I think as a senior official, you have an obligation to master your subject and where there is a requirement to inform the public about facts, then I think you have every right to, to speak. Certainly, I always try to do that in 
concert with government, um, certainly not doing it without government's knowledge. You're not trying to catch people out here and you're certainly not, as perhaps um, Greg might have been suggesting in his article, trying to get into the centre of partisan politics. But I think it would be negligent for a senior official to sit back and watch what I would describe as a misinformed public debate going on because terrorism is a bit like the immigration debate. It's a very sensitive issue. We all understand that. Everyone gets that. And it needs to be managed very carefully. I had, as I just reflected a few minutes ago to Alan, a couple of interests in this. One was selfish, that is, that ASIO was using these small communities, Mm. the target communities, they're a great sense of support and a source of information for us as to what was going on. They enable and support ASIO in doing their business. ASIO is only as good as the community that it works for. And the second thing was the issue of community cohesion, that is not using terrorism as a vehicle for dividing the community, but rather trying to bring the community together. So no, I I don't think that any official should feel constrained. So I need to be careful there. You you do need to be constrained and conscious of what you're saying and how it might play into the debate. But I think it's essential that you do speak up when necessary. You don't do it every day. You're not out there trying to sort of seek attention or, or create some sort of political sort of conflict. But I think you do, as the official in Australia who is theoretically the most informed, you know, that's what you get paid for, Mm. to know about these things, that you should be able to pass public comment. And I strongly believe that. I think it's really important. It's always dangerous, but it is important. Well, just one more question on this terrorism issue, Duncan. An event at the Lowy Institute earlier this year, you described the current terrorism threat as stable but unacceptably high. And you've said it's going to be with us indefinitely, but what would it take to bring this threat down to an acceptable level over the Mm. short to medium term? Yeah, Darren, I don't think I've ever said it will be with us indefinitely, but it will be with us for a very long time Mm. to come. And uh, you're right with those other comments that I made at, uh, at Lowy. So your question is, well, what to do about all of this? I think time is something of a salve around this. Time is going to be a major factor in the solution, if you like, to this to this problem. Another way of putting that would be to say we won't arrive at a successful outcome anytime soon, that time will be a factor. I think the issue of community cohesion is going to be really important. I am very proud of Australia's achievement as a destination for people from all over the world to come and be Australians. I think we are an outrageously successful example of migration, of multiculturalism, whether I understand all the sort of political baggage around that comment, but if you just take it as a dictionary definition, we are a multicultural society, that's a fact. Uh, And I think we've been able to harness the positives that that brings. So I think community cohesion is going to be very, very strong. It always struck me that people like me, kind of middle-aged white guys, were never alone going to be able to bring this to a successful conclusion. This was going to require the 
small communities involved to actually take matters into their hands within their communities with their understanding of their community members to address it. And short of the military operations, which is another thing altogether, I mean, that had to be done. I mean, Mm. the issue of ISIL occupying territory and so forth had to be resolved and, and now, you know, to an extent that has been achieved. There's still issues, I understand that. But I think community cohesion will be the the second major issue. I think messaging is really important in this, is to get the right sort of public and community messaging going. I think developing confidence between communities is really important. I think Australia should always reinforce the fact that Where migrant communities have had problems at home, leave them at home. That's been quite a strong thread during my childhood. You know, I I grew up in an Australia that had lots of people that had come from Yugoslavia, for example, you know, Mm. where I happened to live in Perth. We had a large Yugoslavian community, and as we know, that was riven by division. And those problems were largely not always, but largely left at home. Or and played out on the field of the soccer. <laughs> Indeed, the Croatia Deacon <laughs> Football Club. But, but uh, you know, they were, they were problems that were not transferred or transported here to Australia. And I think it's really important that we keep that dynamic going. The other thing, of course, is community awareness of the security dimension, that is to protect ourselves for when bad things happen or bad things look as though they're about to happen. And without scaring the pants off people, to make sure that our community is aware of the dangers that are afoot, and if they see something, that they can quickly identify it and report it in order that we might be able to do something about it. And that is all for the first half of our interview with Duncan Lewis. Please look out for part two in your podcast feeds, which we are planning to release a few days after part one. And as always, thank you for joining us for this episode of Australia in the World. We want to thank AAA intern Isabel Hancock for research and audio editing, XC Chong and James Hain for research support, Rory Stenning for composing our theme music, and also Julia Arends for technical support in the studio.